record and we'll get started. So uh, welcome to Dan Carey, Bill Arnott, and Alex Ganoom. Uh, we're here for the a fireside chat we're calling uh, How to Succeed in Beer Without Brewing IPAs. And so we have three guests we thought would be uh, useful informants about that. Three people who have, who have sold a lot of beers that aren't IPAs and have successful breweries. So let me introduce everybody. Uh, Dan Carey has an illustrious brewing career with degrees from both Siebel and the Diploma Master Brewers exam at the Institute of Brewing in London. Um, he was an engineer designing breweries for JV Northwest in Oregon in the 1980s. Um, and as such, we claim him as an Oregonian. Um, but more famously, he and his wife, Deb, founded Nuclearis Brewing 30 years ago in 1993. Uh, Bill Arnott was born and raised in the UK and started brewing at Tipples Brewery in Norfolk. He followed a girlfriend to Seattle, and when he found himself uh, missing cast scales of home, uh, he began his own brewery in 2013. Uh, Machine House has become one of the lone producers and early evangelists of Cascale. Alex Ganoom uh, got his first taste uh, of brewing at Omegong before moving to Oregon, where he found, uh, found a job brewing at BJ's Brewhouse. In 2009, he started his own brewery, Upright, which uh, is a reference to the Upright base to his love of music. Over the years, Upright has established itself as one of the most unusual breweries in the U.S., exploring farmhouse and wild ales, lagers, and lately cask ales. And actually, you even make some IPAs, but we won't hold that against you for this. <laughs> um, so let's uh, hear a little bit about... I'm going to put this on speaker. Let's hear a little bit about each of you, um, and we'll, we'll start out the conversation kind of getting a background in how you got into the beer styles uh, you did. Bill, why don't we start out with you? I think you have maybe the most uh, narrow range of beers that you produce. Um, and you produce a style of beer that's not super, not only not, is it not super popular in the United States, it's not even super well known in the United States. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Cascale and how you got into that, and <laughs> we'll 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 ask you later on how it feels brewing that. But but tell us about Cascale to begin with. Sure. So, um, like you said, I grew up in England. Um, I moved permanently to the U.S. in 2010, um, but I spent a little time back and forth. Um, but yeah, I'd kind of grown up with. Um, the English pub environment and cask beer being sort of always a part of that. Um, did a lot of my formative drinking with cask ale, um, which it was sort of odd at the time. Most people when they're between, you know, probably 15 and 25 will drink more like lagers and stuff in, in England, but, and probably till forties, honestly, but I always really liked the cask ales when I was young and, uh, you know, enjoyed drinking them. They were cheaper than everything else as well at the time. Um, but, um, yeah, just very, you know, it was normal for that. I didn't really think too much of it. It was just, you go to the pub, you got ale, you got lager, you got cider, sort of the deal. Um, I was drinking ales. Um, come to the States, I realized there was a lot of good beer here, but nothing really like that and what was being presented as car scale at that time um seemed a little 
sort of misrepresentative of what makes it great. Um, this is talking about between, you know, 2008 and 2012, when we kind of decided to open a brewery to make car scale. Um, and, um, yeah, so I had uh, worked at a brewery in the UK making car scales and kind of had some experience doing that um, and just was convinced that uh, if we had a brewery, we could um, make it, you know, something that was like the real deal um, and probably better than um, a lot of the examples that were around at the time. Um, so car scale, I mean, it's, you know, the traditional British styles where they're uh, typically kind of lower ABV. Um, I mean, it's a range, but a lot of them lower ABV. Um, session ales, often more kind of malt forward than most American craft beers. Um, and then naturally carbonated in the casks, served at cellar temperature without extra CO2. Um, I don't really want to get too much into trying to describe car scale because it's really hard. You just got to drink it and dry it. And, you know, some people love it, some people hate it. But when it's not served well, it's not good. When it's served really well, it can be, you know, I don't think there's anything better. Um, but, uh, yeah, difficult to serve in the U.S. Um, as you said, not the most popular style, not the most understood um that's not easy to serve it really well and um you know for us that's been both a battle to sort of to do it well to educate people about what it should be like and why it's good or why why you should even care um and um uh but also it's given us the recognition that we have as a brewery that you know are doing something different and doing something you know whether or not everybody loves it would you know trying to do it really well and um so you know it served us well in a certain way <laughs> well i think you have done something that uh it took a long time to catch on um but actually by by planting a flag here in the northwest making cascales um a beer style that I never thought would be popular in Oregon, um, it has actually started to spread. And, and we can go to Alex Ganoom next. Um, Alex, you uh, actually make Cascales now, but you didn't start out making Cascales. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Upright and how you've gone through different fascinations and done different kinds of beers. And, you know, with, with this minor footnote about some IPAs lately, uh, mostly you haven't really done the kind of beers that that other people were doing so talk a little bit about how uh upright got going and what you wanted to brew and and why you kind of shift through all these different styles yeah i think um when i was getting into beer it was uh shortly after moving to portland in 2002 and uh i was lucky enough to get a job at belmont station at the time which is a pretty good pretty good gig to get really deep into beer. Uh, back then, I think the store boasted having 400 different bottles, which is probably a, a fraction of what they can say now. But uh, at the time, that was a pretty amazing collection of, of packaged product. 
and um and uh there weren't too many local beers at the time the local beers you would see on the shelf would be pretty straightforward um remember the pelican beers were pretty popular back then uh in package and um, but all the beers tended to be really straightforward american styles i think um and then what what really got me curious was the the import section which was really heavy on the belgian beers and uh so it was around that time that i really kind of fell in love with with the farmhouse styles or um you know the rustic french ales uh stuff like that i thought it was super tasty super fascinating and uh and i just fell in love with those so uh, eventually when i got to the point where i wanted to open up my own brewery uh i just felt like it kind of made sense to go down that route a little bit it seemed um uh maybe not quite as underrepresented as what bill dealt with with cask beers around here but still i mean at that time in like 0809 um I think you could get like Omegang and Allagash beers out here. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a lot being made locally for sure, and even coming from other parts of the U.S., there wasn't a lot outside of the Omegang and Allagash beers, if I remember right. Um, so it just felt like a a good hole to kind of fill up, um, and I was passionate about it too, so that always helps. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of the, how the the brewery got started. So it began with uh, a pretty distinct focus on the farmhouse styles for sure. We set the whole thing up that way. Um, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Dan uh, does does Randy still work at New Glarus? Oh yeah. Oh great, yeah. So Randy was the um, the head brewer at Omegang when I was there in 2003, and so uh, I learned quite a bit from him. He he taught me a lot about not just the production of the beers, but um, I think on good ways to just appreciate the beers too. Um, and uh, the the open fermenter setup that they had at the time really appealed to me. And so we set up uh, open fermenters at Upright kind of based on that. Um, so uh, yeah, there's there's little roots of like Oma Gang and, and Randy, you know, and in my brewery too, which is kind of fun. So, um, but yeah, moving forward from there, like, I mean, eventually, um, I set up upright to be a pretty small brewery and uh, being small, I think affords you a lot of flexibility. So we were able to stay with the, I think the farmhouse style focus um, because we weren't pursuing really high volume or numbers or anything like that. Um, but eventually, you know, like the, I think the popularity of those styles kind of began to wane at some point. And so you sort of naturally branch out out of necessity, but I mean, there's also part of branching out that I think is built on. Um, you just want to do different stuff as a brewer. You don't necessarily want to do the same stuff forever. And, uh, and so I think for us producing different styles is also a way to just have fun and exercise our, our craft in a more broad sense. Um, and so upright over the years kind of widened its, its profile and, uh, you know, got into lager beer a little bit. I think we started making our pills during like 2013 or so, maybe 2012. Uh, I'm not great with, with time, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. And then we started making IPAs, um, just like a handful of years ago, I think uh, more like kind of typical IPAs or American IPAs, maybe not the most sort of cutting edge trendy style ones, but you can call it an IPA at least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And how did you get into cask? What 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 inspired that? Uh probably Bill. Bill's beers are delicious. And I, I got tired of having to seek them out all the time. And uh, you know, Seattle's uh, I like Seattle, but I don't want to drive up there too often. So 
<laughs> his beers are great. I can't tell you how inspiring his beers were for us. It was one of those things where you you drink the beers. And we'd had like cask beers before from Bridgeport when they were still open, even though they were, you know, kind of hard to come by unless you were at the brewery itself. I mean, you're not going to find like a Bridgeport cask out and about in town at the time. But going to Bridgeport, uh, Deschutes, who is still doing cask, I actually just had a bachelor bitter uh, last week up there, which was tasting really good. Um, but it was, I think it was really Bill's beers that, you know, I got to kind of consume them a little bit more regularly. And, uh, and then, um, and then part of that too, I think was, I think for our 10th anniversary at the brewery, I wanted to have a really sessionable beer because the year before I'd gotten a little too drunk at our anniversary. And, uh, so I said, I'm going to make a beer kind of for me <laughs> at the anniversary. And I, and I ended up making a bitter that I think was like 3.6% or 3.7%. And, um, and this was after having introduced, been introduced to Bill's beers and, uh, it really, uh, I just really loved it. And people seem to enjoy it too at that anniversary party. So then we sort of got the seed of maybe making those beers a little bit more regularly. Nice. All right, Dan, uh, let's let's hear from you. You actually started in an era when, when uh, IPAs weren't actually popular. So you may you may not have been attracted to that for a lot of reasons. But will you tell us a little bit, you, you also... Um, we, we talked before we hit record that I was in Wisconsin uh, when New Glarus opened, and I know that um, you were making lagers. You were kind of famous when I got back back to Oregon. Uh, we got uh, Wisconsin Belgian Red and Raspberry Tart, so you were sort of famous for, I, I mean, famous in a, <laughs> a certain group uh, for these extremely complex wild ales, uh, maybe a decade before anybody else was doing them. So when you started New Glarus, did you have a vision of what kind of ears you would make or what kind of identity it would have? Um, how did how did you get started back 30 years ago now? Well, when when my wife and I started the brewery, I had already worked in the brewing business for uh, about 11 years and actually had lived uh, out in uh, in Portland. So I, I was there when um, when the Whitmer started and uh, when Bridgeport started. So I drank a lot of uh, 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 Bridgeport IPA back in those days, uh, and it was a great beer. So um, we had spent a lot of time watching breweries, which breweries had been successful and which breweries had not been, and why that had happened. Um, I had uh, I graduated from UC Davis and uh, studied brewing, and I from San Francisco, so I, I grew up drinking uh, Anchor Steam beer. Even you know when I was young. Uh, Kind of blew me away in the in the seventies. It was such a complex and beautiful beer, and uh, so so I've always been exposed to lots of different styles of beer. And um, I had done an apprenticeship at a Bavarian lager brewery near Munich. And at one point, we went on vacation to a Belgium, and we went to the Lindemann's brewery. I spent the day with Rene Lindemann and studied how to make uh, lambic beers, how to make uh, fruit beers. And so the idea for us starting the brewery was to make a Belgian red, make our cherry beer. But also in my heart, I'm a lager brewer. So our first beer was more or less a Hellas. It was loosely um, designed after another beer we drank in, in Germany that my wife and I really loved, which was uh, Budvar, uh, but Czech Budweiser. So those were, those two were our original beers. and. Um, 
I, as I said, in my heart, I'm a lager brewer. And but when we started the brewery, we made these two beers, and you know they were moderately successful. So we followed our our customers. We we don't really, you know, I, I make lots of beers. I make everything from um, uh, lambics and, and sour brown ales to fruit beers. I we, we make IPAs. We make box beers, double box, heavy vice beers. If make we have open fermenters and we make all kinds of different beers, but um, we always just listen to what the customers want, and we, certainly we have zero marketing budget, and so so we brewed we brewed over two hundred different beers, and obviously some sell more than others, and really for whatever reason unknown to me, it's a, a mystery that Spotted Cow really took off and has become. The iconic Wisconsin beer, and uh, certainly, um, I love IPAs. I love West Coast IPAs, and that would be our number one selling beer if that's what people were buying. But we're responding to the customers, and I, I, I'm a brewer. I'm, I, I we make a light lager. And I'm happy to make. I would be happy to make an, uh, a light lager. I'd be happy to make a double IPA if that's what the customers want. So it's just simply. Um, business and my love of brewing all kinds of beers. Before we move on, we got to hear a little bit more about Spotted Cow. When did when did you first brew Spotted Cow? And it's not, I mean, I, there's something kind of interesting about the fact that it's not brewed to style. You didn't, you didn't, you know, say this is a Pilsner or this is a whatever you, it was Spotted Cow. So tell us a little bit about how Spotted Cow came about. I was, I was never a home brewer. I, I went to brewing school and started professionally brewing. So the idea of brewing to style, it just seems, um, on one hand, I understand. But on the other hand, it's sort of like being a musician. I mean, it's like saying, well, you know, you don't sound like an eagle, so you're not really, uh, you know, a, a rock band or whatever. It, I, I just brew whatever comes to my mind. And the idea for uh, Spotted Cow came about when, we went to visit an open air museum in Wisconsin. Uh, it's a meaning it was a large plot of land with homesteads on it. Uh, this group of volunteers had gone all over the state and collected these original homesteads because uh, over the years, lots and lots of people have farmers have moved to Wisconsin and these were, you know, log cabins, things like that, that were falling into disrepair. They bought them, they moved them onto this piece of land and they, they have working farms. So there's a, there's a there's a Yankee farm, uh, there's a Norwegian farm, um, and there's a German farm. And on the German farm, you know, they're, they're growing barley and they, they have pigs. And in these in these homesteads, in these houses, there are people dressed in costume outfits and they're cooking like you walk in the house and you it smells like smoke and bacon. And I walked into the root cellar and there was a crock pot uh, with beer and fermented beer. And I thought to myself, boy. I wonder what people would have, German immigrants would have brewed, say, in the 1850s when they came to Wisconsin. What would the beer have been like? Well, certainly, it's they didn't have any. This was in uh, a root cellar. It was, you know, 60 degrees. So, okay, it's an ale. It's not filtered. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's made with local barley. And maybe if they were an affluent farmer, they would have used um, sauce hops, maybe. Uh, and so... Um, and I used a German ale strain, and I just made this beer as one of um, 
one of the 200 beers that we made, you know, I didn't know whether it was going to sell 200 barrels or 2 million barrels. I, it wasn't even in my mind. It was just, hey, here's an idea. I want to do something historic and fun. And we called it a farmhouse ale because it was came from a farmhouse. And of course, the pedantics got all wound up about that. But that's, a, that's another story. And the name for Spotted Cow came about that we had won a gold medal for Belgian Red um, in, um, in England. And we were uh, up in Yorkshire driving around uh, in the springtime. And there were, there were lambs everywhere. Uh, and um, by the way, I, I, I love cast condition ale. And I uh, drank the hell out of landlord, uh, Timothy Taylor, landlord, when I was there. But um, uh, my wife kept looking out the windows. We were driving around. Man, there's just... There's just sheep everywhere. What's the deal with all these sheep? And then she stopped and she said, you know, I bet when people come to Wisconsin, because there's lots of Frisians, lots of Holsteins in uh, Wisconsin, she said, I wonder what people probably say the same thing when they come to Wisconsin. What's the deal with all these spotty cows? Then she got silent for a minute and you know, a little bit of jet lag. And she said, you know, that'd be a really a good name for it. That'd be a great name for a beer. So we took my idea for this kind of root cellar farmhouse beer and the name spotted cow and uh it, it was it was it was a tough sell at first because the wholesalers were uh they were really angry because they said come on come on deb you want us to go out and sell a beer called spotted cow i mean beers are supposed to have names like budweiser and miller and coors you know hard manly names spotted cow come on I'm not gonna, we can't sell this beer and so deb she stuck to her guns and she said to me well it's either going to be a big success or it's going to be a flop and it just kind of grew and grew and grew and and what year was that that, that you released it the first time oh man that was probably uh, uh probably uh late not late night mid mid late 90s mm -hmm. all right maybe, maybe 95 maybe 95 okay i see people haven't asked you this you're you're a historian like i am and i think I don't know if it was Bill or, or Alex who said it too. I also have a hard time with that. Ben, yeah. you often jump in uh, here after we've gotten rolling with some questions. Would you like to uh, throw something out? No, I'm I'm fascinated by these stories so far, actually. So I just want I want to keep hearing what these guys have to say. Okay. Well, you jump in if you or raise your hand or something. Let me know if you if you want to get in on this. Uh, so one interesting thing that I see developing is sort of a, we, we have on the one hand, Bill, um, really pursuing a style of beer and, and trying to bring, starting with a style of beer and trying to bring customers there, uh, Dan talking about following the customers and ending up in this place. And maybe Alex is sort of in between. Um, So let me let me go to the let me go to you, Alex, the in between person, and ask. Uh, <laughs> um, as you were trying all these different things, what what was sort of the the rhyme or reason? What were your ideas about what the next thing would look like? And you know, you and I live in Portland, Oregon, so even by the time you launched your brewery, IPAs were all over the place. And I, and I know you actually made IPAs fairly early on, but they never became a big feature of the brewery. So, you know, how did you balance your passion for the styles of beer you wanted to do versus what the market was asking for? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty 
sounds like a simple question, but it's not very easy to answer because, um, I mean, I, I think a, a lot of us can be pretty stubborn. And when you run a little brewery, you really want to hold on to that and sort of do what you want. There's a reason why you, you made it small, right? And so there is a, a bit where you think like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do what I want and we'll we'll just figure out a way to make it pencil out and make sure that the the brewery is is working in a way that that makes sense financially but um I mean I guess the, the reality is that like you, you do have to be a little bit more more in tune with what customers want it's it's a more competitive market now than when we first started so these are things that have changed over time I think quite a bit especially in the last probably 5 years or so um because I mean, it's not just that the the market's kind of crowded, but I think um, yeah, consumers probably maybe like a little bit more specific about what they're looking for too. Um, so there's a lot to that, but then there's also more consideration, I think, into how you put the beers out, not necessarily what they are. Um, I think that, for instance, the the way that we produce. Uh, like right now we have like two year out IPAs and we, we bang out some, some uh, one-off ones occasionally too, just to mix it up. And, uh, and part of the IPA thing was kind of born out of, I mean, we're, uh, I mean, a lot of folks that are listening that don't know, we're directly across the street from the Moda center where the trailblazers play. It's a big event space. And, uh, and an event crowd is typically looking for more standard beers, if, if that makes sense. And so, uh, when we would get like the event crowd come in and not just Blazers fans, but there'd be like all sorts of different concerts, monster truck rally, rodeo. I mean, we get a, a funny cross section of customers in our tasting room. Um, they're probably not looking for uh, like a barrel aged farmhouse style beer. Some of them are, but the majority of them want something that says IPA and, uh, you're, you're able to take advantage of that a little bit because the style has name recognition. I think we can sort of brew it on our terms, which isn't necessarily probably the most popular or like trendy way to make the style now. Um, but it's close enough to where we can label it an IPA and, um, and it works and people will, will buy it. And so in that sense, I feel like we're, we're bridging this gap of making the customers happy, giving them what they want, or what they think they want and uh and still like i think holding on to how we want to produce the beers and more sort of like in a more kind of detailed way if that makes any sense yeah bill you uh could use the cask uh format and do ipas or do hoppier styles or you know get into terpene infused uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the hoppy beers that are sold on cask. Um, but instead, it seems like you, and I know that you do do some hoppy beers, but it seems like you've tried to encourage people to come to the beer rather than the other way around. And I'm curious how, as uh, a, a brewer and, and also as a publican, I know that you, <laughs> the first time I met you, you were standing behind the bar um, how do you encourage people to try the beers that they're maybe not, they don't walk in thinking they want, they walk in wanting an IPA and, and you want, you know, how do you coax them into drinking a dark mild? Um, I think, um, 
it's changed, you know, and I never really, you know, I, I hear a lot of people and I've heard a lot of people over the years say, you know, like you, you don't get to decide what you make or sell that the customers decide. And, you know, that there's definitely <laughs> like, that's the wise way to think about it. Um, as a really small brewer, it, that's sometimes hard for us to do, but, um, I don't think I ever really came to it from the point of view of like, you know, we're going to make this thing. We're going to like shove it down people's throats, whether they like it or not, you know, because it's good, you know, but the first point is you start, this is good. You just have the confidence that this is going to be good. And if people try it, they might like it. Um, accepting also that not everybody's going to like it. So, you know, sort of have to live with that one way or another. Um, when we first started, you know, we were just, trying to be a very, very small brewery. We had a tap room and we just had three cask ales on a golden ale. We just called it gold. It was, it was bitter, mild and gold. And this was 2013. So it was like pretty unusual. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that, I mean, you know, and we've never been a successful brewery, you know, from a financial point of view, put it that way. But, you know, we were able to, um, you know, we, we have, you know, outlasted a lot <laughs> at this point. And, um, you know, I think one thing that has helped us there is that we did just kind of focus. We just focused on those, made sure they were good all the time. And actually, at least in our tap room anyway, um, like in our own brewery, it was like, well, this is what you got. So if we had a bunch of draft beers also available, um, if we had, you know, IPAs and other things that people were maybe more um, familiar with and, you know, used to, they, we wouldn't sell that much cask ale, but because we just had those people kind of had to try them. And, you know, I'm sure there were people that just didn't come back because they didn't like them, but there was a lot that were like, well, actually this is good. I've never tried to, you know, I thought we were going to get lots of people who like, I've been to England, I lived in England, or I'm a brewer and I love these styles. But actually, we had a lot of people who completely unfamiliar with them. We're not even trying to, you know, pressure them to like it. They just tried it and they liked it. And um, that was, um, I mean, that's always been maybe the most satisfying when you just, you know, you know, a lot of us brewers and beer people can kind of nerd out about it. And certainly people that have lived in England or drank beer in England, you know, um, have that connection and familiarity, but, you know, when you can just give a 3.7% bitter or mild to a customer used to American craft beer or, or even a customer that only drinks, you know, Budweiser and, and they are like, Oh yeah, pretty good. Then that's like, <laughs> that's nice. Right. So ultimately, like, it's nice if you don't really have to, like, coax people into it too much. But, you know, there is, like, what you're offering kind of affect that. These days, we offer a lot more different stuff. And, you know, of course, when our beer is sold in other pubs and supermarkets or whatever, customers are choosing from a huge array of different things. And for them to choose the cast-conditioned bitter or stout, then, you know, they're obviously, you know, but, you know, Obviously, not a huge number of people are buying it, but more than probably a lot of people thought would. Um, and um, my hope is that it's enough to sustain a small brewery in the Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all hope that. 
<laughs> uh, for, for folks who are not aware, uh, the Machine House was was originally located in the Machine House of the old uh, Rainier Brewery, and uh, Bill lost the lease uh, last last year or this year sometime, and you you just recently moved um, two miles west. Is that right? Like across the city and opened a new brewery. So how's that going? Yeah, so we um, we were in that Georgetown location. I'm sure a lot of people have been there um, in the original Rainier Brewery. Um, we lost the lease and moved out in uh, June, um, found a new location to move into um, just a few miles away. And uh, we, well, yeah, <laughs> it's not fun <laughs> moving a brewery, even <laughs> a brewery like ours. Um, you know, it's especially on relatively limited, you know, resources and man manpower. Um, but um, we got our tap room up and running and we're just trying to get the brewery back, you know, up and running, um, hopefully brewing next week. Is that what we're shooting for? Um, yeah. And, you know, tough, but, you know, we're able to, you know, keep doing our thing and it's also definitely for us a bit of a time to sort of reflect and see what we want to be doing like you know what's going to give us the best chance of success and you know these kinds of things that we're talking about now definitely you know it's a lot to think about there um and yeah just um trying to find where to um sort of follow what customers want as well as you know maintaining um our own sort of uh identity as a brewery among there's just so many breweries here and you know it, it's difficult to you know have a clear identity i mean for us that's been maybe a little bit simpler because of the style that we choose to do but um yeah it has to all make sense right dan i think we need to talk about wisconsin um were uh when ben and i were talking about this to begin with we we were we both kind of settled on a question that i've always wanted to ask you uh which is is new glarus possible anywhere but wisconsin <laughs> i mean uh everybody else in the country looks at your brewery and how much beer you sell and the fact that you only sell it in wisconsin and that you don't sell any ipas um uh and wonder what what is happening in wisconsin well we actually do have uh we, we have a dry hop pale ale that's our number two selling beer and we we actually did release an ipa single ipa this year and we also make uh once a year a double ipa but they're um not not you know we, we make we can give you we make 20 beers and the top three are probably 85 percent and, and you know all the way down to atlantic where we might make 40 barrels so so we make everything in between but uh I would say that Wisconsin is is unique. Um, uh, I remember I was out in Chico and I was in a taxi and a taxi driver uh, said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Wisconsin. He said, oh, I love the Packers. I've always loved the Packers. And I thought, oh, you must be from Wisconsin. No, no, I'm from Chico. Uh, so there is something uh, about uh, Wisconsin. I, I know that around uh, the country, in many cities, there are expat bars where you can go into and uh, and, and, and uh, you know, watch the uh, UW Badgers or the uh, Packer games and eat bratwurst and cheese curds. And 
all the cultural things that are about around Wisconsin. Wisconsin is mo it's a mix of northern, mostly northern Europeans, uh, mostly um, Germans and Norwegians. So there's a, a beer culture is very strong uh, in Wisconsin, and people are, as Deb says, parochial in their buying habits. Um, but you know, I I would imagine that this model would work in other places. You know, I think about beers that are iconic, like um, like Scheiderbach is in Texas, um, and I would think that every area. I mean, it's changing, but most areas of the country have a um, have a culture, uh, have touchstones, and um, you can't fake it. But if you're part of that fabric in a given area, I think that you can be uh, you can be successful. Um, and every 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 situation is different, and, and you can't copy. Brewers often copy what other people do, and I don't think that's that's such a great idea. You know, our our idea for our brewery really we were as I said, I'm really a, a, at part a longer. And we've always been really impressed with the Augustiner Brewery in Munich. And we think about our business lasting for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we're trying to set it up in that way. And Augustiner in Munich is the, well, you know, kind of things, things uh, uh, wax and wane, but it's sort of the beer that, that people, most people will drink um, and uh, Edelstuff. So, but, but. Augustiner is more than the beer. It's it's into the culture. It's it's part of the fabric of the of the of the city. Of of um, they 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 have a lot of uh, philanthropic work that they do, and we do similar types of things. So there's more to it than just a label and a brand. It's a feeling of ownership. And my wife Deb, who's who's the president of the brewery, is always. Thinking about these things, about what what is it? What what are people buying? When when she, before we start the brewery, she took we were living in Oregon, and she took she attended a, a school called the Greenhouse Program that was put on by the state of Wisconsin to help small business people get going. It's a great program, and one thing that they always beat into the students' head was, "What are you really selling?" Well, I'm selling beer. No, 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 you're not really selling beer. What are you selling? And the experience in the, we have such an opportunity in the modern world where people are so uh, alone and lonely and living on social media, which, you know, for someone my age, it's really strange that, uh, uh, you know, to friend somebody. I mean, if you want to friend somebody, it might be you go knock on their door and say, hey, let's go do something. So, so this modern world of social separation means that people are really hungry for something that tethers them to some type of community and i think that is the, maybe the those are the things that people need to think about rather than just it has to be in the border of my state um i guess those would be the clues that i i would think so so i do think maybe in the short answer is certainly is possible it's more realistic for brewers nowadays not to sell in 50 states and eight countries I mean, I've been in Dublin and I see American craft beer and it blows my mind away when I see, a, you know, well-known American craft beer being sold in in London or in the Virgin Islands and I'm, or Dublin. I think, wow, is this really what you want to do with an all malt, highly hopped uh, beer that's 
not unpasteurized. I mean, I think the idea and also the idea of salespeople, because we have a total of, I think, six salespeople. We have more people in our lab than we do on our sales staff. And, you know, we're 240,000 barrels of beer. So it's not really economically efficient to sell beer a long way away, unless you're Anheuser-Busch and have, you know, whatever, 12 breweries around the country. Um, it, it's it's it, it's not, not a, uh, it doesn't make business sense. Another thing that Ben and I talked about, um, we're just kind of reflecting on other old breweries that we knew and, and you know, you were in Portland when, when Widmer opened and, and Hefeweizen became their big flagship. And it was, um, it's hard to impress on people what an important and popular beer that was in its time. And, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, sort of analogous to Spotted Cow. Uh, people, other breweries were imitating it. Basically, everybody felt like that. Out of half, half yeah. Uh, but that brewery did not sustain Hefeweizen the way that you have sustained Spotted Cow. Um, and when you talk about uh, Augustiner or other other old breweries that have been around for, for generations or, or centuries, um, you know, they, they tend to have beers that have through lines. Uh, Timothy Taylor hasn't been making Landlord the whole time, but they've been making it a long time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how uh, how did you think about Spotted Cow and what do you, how do you, how do you preserve and protect that brand knowing that, you know, that's kind of your calling card now. And, and that is that in, in many ways, you know, that's how people know you. Yeah, that's that that's a that's a really good question. That's what uh, I spend most of my days doing. But just a quick story about uh, Widmer. When I was living in Portland, when they um, started to contract brew at the Valblatz Brewery in Milwaukee, because it was selling so well in um, uh, in Oregon that they started brewing it in Wisconsin. And soon after that, we moved to Wisconsin, and Frank Commande, who was you probably remember him. He, he, he went to the Valblatz Brewery and they made the beer and they started to sell it. And it was great. It's great beer. But people in Wisconsin said, bus is dust. That's is, that's is kind of uh, vice beer. Uh, and <laughs> it, it, it didn't do well. And it dawned on me, oh, this is important. What goes, what does well in one area is not going to do well in another. I mean, you drink a beer like uh, Schlenkel Rauch beer in Bomberg, it's freaking Nirvana. But I mean, you're drinking it in your kitchen, um, you know, in Peoria, Illinois, it's kind of like, I don't know, this kind of tastes like a campfire. So every beer has a different a beer, different beers fit in different uh, situations. But to, to direct, directly answer your question, the when we were really tweaking this recipe, and all brewers know what I mean, you know, to, to kind of fine tune that this beer, I, I I was having a hard time wrapping my head around where this beer needed to go. And, and Deb, having been born in Milwaukee, really understood the Wisconsin sensibility. And I did. You know, I'm, I'm from California, from San Francisco. And so I would often say to her, what do you want this beer to taste like? Is this what you want? No, no, no. You need to go this way. And as, as we fine tune the beer, now it's, it's what, what we call the beer is laminated. The recipe is done. We, we don't, there's really no deviations, you know, uh, unless there's crop changes and, and, and those sorts of things. But the beer is, has, it was a journey of uh, 
really understanding what beer is. So all brewers have or should have verb, written verbiage about what the beer is. What does it taste like? I don't. I mean above and beyond APV and, and bitterness units and attenuation and color, all of those things. I'm talking about the description of what the flavor is. And that becomes your touchstone. And you want to stay within those guardrails. And so spotted cow is a very defined taste. Um, and it's, it's, it's what I do is mainly trying to make sure that I keep the center of that lane. And that, that comes down mostly to choosing raw materials. For example, when we first started making spotted cow, it was, it was 10% corn. And uh, I still have some uh, PTSD about that because a lot of my brewer friends were like, oh, my God, that's, you, know, you can't use corn. That's that's uh, it's not right in high school. And now I see these. I, I talk to brewers out in California and they're talking about making IPAs with rice and corn to dilute down the fan level. And I'm like, you're freaking kidding me because <laughs> brewers gave me so much crap about using corn. And I kept saying, look open the window in my brewery and there's corn everywhere. Anybody who's been in Wisconsin in the summertime knows you can't throw a rock without hitting a cornfield. It just made perfect sense. But we, we went away from using corn. We went to 100% barley malt. And that meant that I had to find lower protein barley, lower protein malt. So uh, that's another important thing in, in the beers. We're always looking for the lowest protein malt and the best Saws hops, for example, uh, and, and that's a lot of, you know, the base for beer, of course, is the, the, the raw materials and, of course, yeast health, which is pretty much where I spend my time. Right. Yep, can I chime in with a question here? Yeah, yeah, please. This is this is for all three of you guys. I, um, I'm interested, going back to kind of the, the basic kind of uh, question about the way in which the your brand, your brewery presents its portfolio of styles. I get the sense, uh, of course, Alex knowing you very well and Bill a little bit and Dan uh, reading many things you've said over the years and listening to the podcasts. Uh, all of you seem to have a sensibility that prefers beers that are a little bit more balanced. Your own preferences seem to lean that way. Uh, beers that are complex, sessionable, Moorish, et cetera. Where... What's the tension there in your kind of day-to-day -day in terms of what you make to try and push for beers that are like that and to get those in front of your customers? And then the secondary question that is, do you find IPA just simply too loud? Uh, I mean, I think the, the IPAs that we're seeing around here now are from my palate, definitely too loud just to generalize them. If the beer kind of walks by a few feet away and I can smell it, that's too much. <laughs> but um, I mean, another funny thing about that too, is I think if, if you, if you were able to illustrate like the hop volume that goes into those beers to somebody who doesn't produce the beers, I wonder if some folks would, look at that and be like this is ridiculous like <laughs> i mean just the sheer volume of hops that goes into some of these beers is wild but i think uh 
you know, if you're if you're selling the beer on premise, you know, you can talk to your staff, you know, your bartenders about how to sort of present the beer and how to, um, I think, explain, not explain, but like um, kind of just almost like promote a more balanced beer, I guess. Um, I think that's a lot easier to do under your own roof than when you're dealing with your like your distributors and like the other accounts like out and about. Um, how do you really do that? I mean, I don't know if you do. I mean, you have to do it your own way with how you present, I guess, like on social media or like through your website or just how you, however you connect with your, your customers. Otherwise that isn't in your own tap room. So that's a lot trickier. And I'm not even sure that there's a great answer for that. But I mean, for me, it's like a lot of it has to do with trying to get as much contact with the consumer in the, in the tap room or where it's direct contact. And I remember going back to Randy again, when, when I was at Omegang in 03, I think it was pretty much 100% bottles back then. And I remember talking to him and Kevin, uh, who, who were, you know, in charge at Omegang and uh, asking them like, what's, what would be like your sort of dream scenario for a brewery? And they both said, oh, a brew pub where 100% of the beer goes in kegs and gets sold in house. <laughs> and at the time I was like 23 years old and I didn't really get it. Cause I was like, this is so cool. Look at all these bottles they are going all over the place. But of course now it makes a lot of sense. So. Well, Alex, that's it's interesting because that was the third part of that question that I didn't want to like bomb you guys with, but is like around the hospitality piece is around this question of how do you actually, in a in a landscape where people are kind of acclimated to very loud beers, mm -hmm. what's the secret at the hospitality, like on a day-to-day -day basis to actually encouraging and getting people to take on beers that are quieter, that are more enjoyable for three or four you know yeah it's i mean i think you, you have to embrace what the beers are you know they're, they're, that they're not loud and that you, you have to just kind of remind people that you they don't have to go for the for the, the big stuff the attention grabbing stuff high octane super this super that um people need to be i think just kind of reminded of that i, so I you think about that oh i'm sorry uh let me, before you jump in, Daniel, let me, uh, Bill, this is a problem even in the UK. So uh, Cask is sort of, you know, not doing great there either. So uh, yeah, how do you, how do you promote these delicate balanced beers to, to Ben? Um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of a weird trajectory there, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, uh, yeah, like you say, in England, Cask is, you know, kind of waning, there's American influenced craft beer is a big wave that, you know, is a lot more popular. And I mean, I don't know, like the statistics of what, you know, how things sell you, all you hear is there's a bit of sort of doom and gloom around cask sales and pubs closing and all that stuff. But there's also this sort of resurgence of people embracing cask and younger people getting into it, um, which, you know, uh, and then, of course, here, well, cask is not really a thing particularly, but it's really embraced by a lot of brewers, you know, I mean, with, you know, very popular among other brewers. <laughs> and, you know, that's definitely a um, kind of interesting, maybe, uh, development that wasn't particular. I mean, I, I didn't, I was surprised by that, I suppose. Um but um yeah i mean i don't know how it is in england i haven't spent a lot of time back there in a long time 
but um i imagine there's i mean i see it i see like you know more kind of traditional cask brewers there trying to sort of be that loud like we can do this loud stuff and it doesn't like look very authentic to me and it's probably you know it's like cask breweries making like a ipa that's like you know probably just like pales in comparison to what people do here i mean certainly always lower alcohol in general and stuff um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can only speak to my own experience. And for us, like, we kind of just made the beers that we do that just are naturally going to be more gentle and more, you know, balanced. I mean, I feel like every brewery in the world says their beers are balanced, like no matter what they are or how unbalanced they are. So I kind of hesitate to use that term. But I think, like, you're looking at, you know, those more, kind of old world styles that are inevitably going to be more balanced than um you know super intense uh hazy ipas etc um and yeah just not apologizing for it i mean it always makes sense to me and we've always had loads of customers being like well i'm so sick of ipas i'm so glad you have something else and maybe the people that just really want an ipa don't say anything <laughs> like uh it just seems like the, the number of people given those kinds of sentiments really outweighs, you know, the opposite. Um, obviously, statistically, IPAs just keep, you know, dominating everything else in the, you know, in that kind of beer scene. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's never really been not something that really bothers me that much. Um, and um, yeah. Sorry. Dan, what what I, I'm sorry to I've cut you off. What were you gonna say on the, on this loud this question of loud? I, I think it's I think it's the wrong I think it's the wrong question because uh I think of beer often like like food or music. So if we if we use music as an example, and you might want to say, you know, something like Vivaldi is is mellow and peaceful, whereas something like Jimi Hendrix or the Almond Brothers, you, you know, you could crank up you know, the volume to 10. But uh it, so so Different horses for different courses. So uh, balance is. It, I would argue that uh, a beer like um, like Pliny the Younger or the Alchemist, I would say they're balanced. Um, and and, and the, the the volume is certainly up, way up compared to say uh, you know you know Budweiser. But uh, they're still they still have good drinkability. And and so a beer can be loud. It can be brash. Um, and I still appreciate it, but it has to be drinkable. Um, and what that means is that it um, has a combination of complexity and boorishness, meaning that it makes you thirsty. You want to drink more. And sometimes beers can be very, very complex, but they're satiating and full. And sometimes beers can be, go down like water, but they have no complexity. And to me, a perfect beer is one that every time you take a sip, it's a new experience. It's like, oh, wow, now I'm tasting peaches. Oh, now, you know, now I taste the citra hops or, oh, wow, I can, I can get a little bit of that multi-munic character. And, and that is, that's the fun part of beer. And if you, if you tie that to a beer that has really nice drinkability, the more you drink, the thirstier you're, you get. And, and then you're sad when the glass is empty. I don't care if it's 80 IBUs or 10 IBUs. Um, that is that can be accomplished at eight percent alcohol or three percent alcohol. 
so I don't that 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 doesn't really enter my mind when I'm designing beers. I don't think about uh, limiting and saying and 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 I don't. I've always had a problem with people trying to say, "Oh, my style of beer is better than that style of beer. Or this is not real beer, or or whatever." Because um, I, I I don't know. I just kind of find it a little bit arrogant. Um, and uh, not really being inclusive. And there's a really a lot of really great, you know, we use the word loud beers out there that, that I drink the hell out of. So it's it's just, it's not, it's, I don't think it's a, a really an important question. So we have uh, reached the top of the hour. And if other folks have questions, you can raise them now. I, I think we probably have enough, enough to keep talking. Um, a little bit more, I have other questions. So, but I wanna, uh, we have a few other folks here. So if you have questions, feel free to raise your hand or, or holler, um, but we can carry on. Yeah, I mean, Dan, both you and Alex make wild ales and uh, Brennomyces and bacteria can be pretty loud. <laughs> so you definitely are dealing with some pretty uh, punchy beers that way too. Um, even uh, even dry hopped eight uh, percent alcohol uh, uh, goods of style beers. So yeah, so marriage of an IPA and a sour sour blonde beer, American sour beer together. So so we do push the envelope. But the, as I said at the beginning, um, it, it's <laughs> we we sell the beer and believe me, I'd love to sell hundred thousand barrels of it. But you know we we, we sell forty barrels if we're lucky. So it's what people want or not don't want. Right. Yeah, I think at some point we're going to have a, a chat about um, Belgian styles, and I don't know if we'll include wild ales in that. Um, they once were quite popular in, in craft space, and they're sort of dropping off. But that's that's perhaps for a different time. Um, I, I'm, ben, you should probably stop me from before I ask another cast question. But uh, I have <laughs> I have another cast question, which is, Alex, um, you started making cask at a moment when Portland, we now have maybe, I don't know, 10 breweries that routinely have a cask program. And if you go to the breweries, you'll, you'll find beer on cask. Um, was there, within beer, there's this subtle balance between what the customer wants and what the, what the brewer uh, offers. So there's a push and a pull. And I'm curious as a brewer, had Bill created that that pull in the marketplace, or uh, to his point, um, you're one of those brewers who just love Cascale and decided you'd try to give it a push in Portland. Um, are you seeing, uh, after a decade of Bill trying to evangelize these beers, are you seeing um, customers come in excited about Cask? Is that something that that we're seeing? I mean, it's never going to be a major thing, but is there is there a reliable market for Cascale now? I think people are definitely people that are experiencing it for the first time. I um, I'm surprised how much they're enjoying it. Um, when we started doing it regularly, I thought if this doesn't stick, I'm just ready to scrap the whole idea. Um, and it's it's been received better than I would have guessed, um, and that's been great. I think a lot of people seem to appreciate. I think the the drinkability aspect. I mean, the, the styles that we tend to do, um, 
are like kind of floating in that like 4% ABV range, you know, three and a half to just over four. And, um, but obviously the, the beers tend to be pretty flavorful. Um, and there definitely seems to be like a good reception to, to that. Um, but I mean, if, if you're asking if people are coming in, like looking for it, um, I think not as much as people that are kind of being int introduced to it still. Okay. Ben, you have a brewery. Do people come in asking for Cascale at Breakside? No, and I, th I think that's an interesting thing to like kind of um, mine here a little bit is how does each of your breweries fit, position itself, you know, kind of outside the mainstream of IPA by virtue of being positioned in places that are uh, saturated with breweries. Like machine, does Machine House do better as a English style brewery in Seattle when there's a wide range of other breweries that are producing kind of American style beers than it would say Bill in Spokane? Um, I'm sure it's easier to to sell in the Seattle market um, than probably a lot of others. But I don't know from experience. Um, you know, I think when we started Machine House and we were figuring out what we wanted to do, definitely in my mind, well, I didn't really want to start a brewery and make, you know, anything particular or, you know, uh, a whole big you know, try and try and make every different style or anything like that. Um, gotten more curious over the, over the years, but it was more like I, I certainly didn't want to just. It's, they felt at the time in 2011, 2012, there was a lot of breweries in the area, and there was maybe already too many, or like there was just plenty there already. So why would I make a brewery making the same stuff as everybody else? But I also had this one thing that I was missing, and I, I struggled to find like, um, you know, that an example of that for good reason. I mean, in some ways, Carscale belongs in English pubs and that's sort of, you know, like part of the whole experience, um, especially the serving method and just customer appreciation. But yeah, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't have opened a brewery to make, um, to, to make the the more uh conventional um styles at that time um being ipa heavy i mean obviously breweries here make you know a whole range of styles like and and we do we make a, a narrower range but we still make a range of different things but yeah um and there's no rules everyone can make whatever they like and that's great um but um yeah i wouldn't have um sort of personally I wouldn't have bothered to open a brewery unless I had this thing I really wanted to do that was not really you know well represented at the time um unless I I guess unless I thought I could do it better than everybody else which I didn't <laughs> I, have a, I have a question about a, a future basin question and it looks a little different for all three of you um maybe to start with Dan uh Wisconsin is is unusual in the United States in that you have all these strata of 
extant breweries that still exist um, that have been around for, uh, you know, several breweries dating back to the 19th century. You mentioned uh, wanting to be, create a brewery that would, would stand the test of time and, you know, long outlast you. What, what does that strategy look like? Or how do you, as you're, you know, you may not live forever. So uh, <laughs> what's the next generation of New Polaris owner look like? And and how do, how does, how do you keep that going? You know, I mean, if you, if you go to Milwaukee right now, you see the bones of the past brewery. So, you, you know, they don't always last. So how do you, how do you build in that long-term appeal? Well, Paps lasted for a, a very long time, but uh, that, that is a good point. And uh, you, you speak to something that's uh, sort of our mantra. A, a lot of our success uh, comes down to our relationship with our wholesalers, clear and concise uh, communication with our wholesalers. And the problem with the craft brewing business is, is that it, it, it's limited that the name craft beer connotes a certain type of person with a certain look producing a certain type of beer with stainless steel uni tanks. And this is what people expect. And we never thought of ourselves as a craft brewery. We thought of ourselves as a brewery. And we're no different than Coors than we are the 10 barrel tap room on the corner. We're all competing in the same market. And so when the wholesalers tried to pigeonhole us as a craft beer and all of the thing that goes on with that and the price points and the, the placements, et cetera, we, we tried to, to fight that and say, look, we, we are, we're no different than Valblatt's or Schlitz, et cetera, et cetera. And it, 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 I remember when, when Deb told the wholesalers, we're going to pass up Stevens Point Brewery, and the wholesalers laughed. And soon after that, we did. And then she said, we're going to pass up lining poodles. And they thought, you guys are freaking nuts. No way. And now it's finally dawning on them that we're a brewery. We're not a cute little craft brewery. We're a brewery. And so that that's number one. But as far as the long-term existence of a brewery, it comes down to the everyday decisions, decisions that you make on how you how you run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. Are you are you looking at the next at this quarter and, and paying dividends? Or are you looking at what's best for the next decade? So for example, we're we're redoing our cellar with a high level of automation so we can run lights out overnight so that we don't have to have anybody on the midnight shift. It basically will go through CIP programs and get up, get ready in the morning. So when the brewers come in at five in the morning, everything's clean and ready to start. It's very expensive, but it will last for 50 years or more. So a lot of it has to do with training uh, and hiring of people. Certainly everybody knows that uh, employee uh, retention is changing, employee expectations. Younger people have different uh, expectations of their work than, say, people in my generation. So the company has to keep evolving. We're now employee-owned. So the, the employees are slowly buying the brewery from us. And we have, we have a committee of people. And these are you know, these are workers, not, uh, you know, not office staff, but, but brewers and maintenance techs and engineers that sit on a panel and uh, are, are we're slowly handing over uh, responsibility to them. 
uh, as they adopt our, 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 our values, the company values. The company values are all about community um, and the fabric of the community. It's not a vampire capitalism where you're extracting mining wealth out of out of the people and the community, which eventually destroys the community and ruins people's lives. If if you build a business that that is that is that that is gives and takes from the community and gives back to the community and pay people a living wage and health insurance, et cetera, et cetera, value uh, in, increases and are for everybody and it's it is sustainable even when things are bad, uh, when people customers will stick by you in that case. Uh, and I certainly the the future is unknown. Who knows what's going to happen, but that's the best that that's the best plan that we can come up with. Yeah. Uh, Alex, your brewery uh, really reflects your personality. And I know that you're not the only brewer there, but for a brewery that is, you know, such a personal expression of, of sort of the tastes of Alex Ganum and and um, Garrett and just sort of your team. When you look forward, um, do you see a place in, in in the brewing scene? And I'm mindful of, of especially given what's happened lately, what Dan said about the beer uh, industry, not the craft beer industry, but the beer industry. Do you see a place for the kind of brewery that Upright is? Uh, to succeed in, I don't know, the next 10, 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think so. It's it's more difficult than ever, but the the brewery or their business is, is built in kind of a, a really personal way, like you mentioned. And um, and part of that, I mean, to, to have it be that is, is kind of like a luxury. It's really, it's, it's hard to explain like what, what that means, but to, to sort of enable that um, having like the low volume and keeping it small, it, it keeps it flexible. Like there's, there's so many sides to it. It's, it becomes in some respects a lot more easy to keep it going because you don't have as much pressure, but, um, but it's tricky too. You, you don't get the same kind of momentum, you know, when I hear, you know, Dan talking about what, what he's built there in Wisconsin, it just kind of, it blows my mind. It's a lot different than what I'm doing. Um, and uh, so again, it goes back to, I think like embracing, you know, what you set up, having the long-term plan is important, um, but also like, like maintaining the, the maximum amount of flexibility possible too. Yeah. Bill, we'll finish up with you here. Um... Cass Gale, you're the the Pied Piper of Cass Gale. Do you do you see how do you see the future of Cask in in this market, uh, which as you mentioned is getting more complex all the time? How, how are you feeling about things? Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I I feel like there's a lot of room for, you know for us to keep doing what we're doing in a better way, improve what we're doing. Um, understanding that it's a very limited market. Um, there's only so many places that will serve car scale. 
currently or probably ever. And um, there's only so many people that will, you know, drink it. It's maybe that there's, you know, a little resurgence and then it just goes away. I mean, if it, it feels like a thing that would could just go away forever, right? In England too, you know. Um, and maybe it will. Um I suppose I don't think that far ahead, <laughs> but probably should. In the meantime, I mean, we make car scale, but we also just make beer and you know, we can make beer in different formats. We're obviously love cask beer and you know, take that very seriously, but we bottle beer we could can beer we can keg beer it's there are different ways and if cask beer was is extinct in 15 years or 20 years then it's possible the machine house still exists making still really good beer in a different format um you know uh yeah (laughs) um kind of a heavy question but you know um (laughs) I can't be like unreasonably optimistic about Carscale taking over America. I don't really think that's particularly likely. Um, but for the meantime, you know, it's good, you know, get it while it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, yeah. I, I feel like it's going to come back, man. You're and you've, you've done a great job. Jeff, could I just make a quick comment about cast beer? I, I, I really think that Bill, you, you, I understand your, your, uh, skepticism but i i think you're in a good really good situation because you said at the beginning top of the hour that uh, cask ale has to be made really really well and when it's really made well the ratio of of flavor to alcohol to low alcohol is is sky high compared to other beers and and the the the, the complexity for a little bit of alcohol is shocking and the the generation that's coming up the generation that's has the pe- buying power now are in their 30s and 40s and they they're drinking hell out of ipas but they're getting older they're going to get married uh they're going to have kids they're going to they're not going to drink as much ipa going into the future and the next generation the people who are in their teens that are coming up are more looking at health things and you know na beer but na beer is kind of not very sexy uh but if you really want a lot of flavor but you you know you in england if you want to have a you, know, you can go out and you can drink all night. It's a social drink. And I think that, man, you, you know, I think that maybe people in their teens, maybe they're going to take to this. I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, a, a, a 10 million barrel uh, entity, but for a tap room, I mean, certainly if I go to Seattle, I, you know, I, I love IPAs, but I'm going to make a beeline for your place. I just want to add another thing. Um, we talked a bit about car scale, but not really touched on just the way it's served and um, is is really important. It really defines if it's going to be good or not, or if you can serve it. And so that kind of just leans you more into the hospitality side. And, you know, for us, you know, we have a tap room um, and, you know, we want to kind of make that the home of cask beer, the place that you're going to go and get it. And it's going to be good. I think, you know, it makes it a little restricting and that we can't just sell casks to anywhere around like our, you know even the bars that are our friends and our neighborhood and stuff aren't necessarily going to serve car scale but it gives us the opportunity to kind of you know serve it the right way sort of present the experience the way we want to and try and have that kind of you know we, we try not to like get into a sort of gimmicky english pub thing but like give some essence of that kind of 
community aspect and the um you know that sort of an environment is conducive for that because there's a lot of different places that serve craft beer or beer or whatever it is and you know some of them are, you know be very odd to have cask beer in there it's like a million miles away from like an old school pub and you can still be good that way but um yeah i mean i think for us if we're going to be successful like really um doing more that way where we get to serve it you know have more of a um a hand in the whole experience you know and it's quite unique in a in a um in in the in the beer world in that like it's so critical to like go all the way to customer um you know service and i think i heard dan say cask is sexy so you should definitely jump on that as a <laughs> some you know that's that's a pretty good jeff this whole idea of controlling the beer i'm really jealous because we make a pilsner and as i said i'm a lager brewer and i, and I love pilsner and i'm really proud of the pills that we make put a lot of effort into it and 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 i, I love to drink it but if i go to a go to a tavern somewhere and i have it's, it's served to me in a shaker glass and it's rimmed full and pour gently so there's no foam because people in wisconsin you know feel like they're getting ripped off if they're not rimmed full and so the carbonation is held in there it's like I just what I want to do is get a second glass and pour it in, this, in, the, in the other glass to evolve some carbonation. So it, it really is hard to sell beer out in the world, even when you're trying to sell a more standard type of a beer. And uh, so it's not just uh, cask beer that can be problematic. And, yeah. and don't get me started on trying to get a highly carbonated Weiss beer on, on Guinness gas, which is a whole nother uh, sin. But that's another story. And that is a thing we we should do the sins of beer. There are there are many. Um, do you have Ben? Do you have anything to add before we uh, before we say thank you? I think this has been a fascinating conversation. That went, uh, the went where we ended up in discussing what you guys discussed was not what I expected in the least. So I that that makes it all the better. I think uh, for ourselves and and hopefully for you guys and all the people who will eventually watch this. So thank you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Dan Carey of New Glarus, Bill Arnott of Machine House, and Alex Ganoom of Upright. Um, definitely, if you're in any of those places, uh, Wisconsin, Washington State, or Oregon, uh, stop in and say hi and have a beer. And thank you so much for joining us. We really, uh, we really appreciate it, and I think people will enjoy this conversation. So thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Hosting, guys. Thank you.